So today we're going to, uh, David and I are, are sharing the preach, and I'm going to do the first little bit, and then David, who was here, oh, there he's there, okay, that's reassuring, <laughs> you disappeared, can't remember where David, okay, he's going to do the second half. So we're going to read, first of all, the story of the shepherds, uh, from Luke 2, chapter 8 to 20, uh, sorry, Luke 2, chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. There are Bibles down here if you need one, uh, but it will be up there on the screen behind me. Let's hear God's word. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen. God bless this reading of his word. We've been looking over these Advent weeks then at at a reverse journey of, of Advent We normally move towards the birth of Jesus. We're moving from the birth of Jesus as the epicenter, the moment that all human history, past and future, uh, moves out from. And last week, so we we thought the first week about about Jesus come into the epicenter uh, of uh, human history, the new Adam So coming to fulfill and uh, redeem the mistakes, the failure, the fall of the first Adam. And then taking humankind, inviting humankind to a journey to go back and to go forward to a new heavens and a new earth. And so from creation and fall through redemption to uh, heaven, to new heavens and a new earth. And we thought about how Jesus uh, came to stand in the tradition, stretching all the way back to God's plan through Abraham and stretching all the way to the new community, the new nation, the new society. And then last week we moved out because there's a little parallel, you see, between the birth narratives and and the, the spread of the gospel. Jesus on the Mount of Olives when he was ascending or just before he ascended, said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And so something that happened in one place, the resurrection, would be witnessed first of all in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and the next areas out, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And the birth narratives are like that. They begin with a moment with a baby in a manger in a house in Bethlehem. And then we thought about the community, the place of hospitality and welcome, the house where all of these people, distant relatives and strangers, were crammed in along with Mary and Joseph trying to find a little corner to stay. And now we're thinking about the Judea and Samaria, if you like, the next ripple out. And so I want to talk about the shepherds as the Judea. Judea, of course, was the area around Jerusalem in the south of the country. And so the shepherds were further out, if you like. David's going to think about the quote-unquote the Samaria, the foreigners, the foreign territory, represented for us in the Christmas story, of course, by the Magi who came later on. And so we have this well-known story of the shepherds, which we don't pause to question because we've known there were shepherds since we first donned a tea towel and a dressing gown. In our very first nativity play. And yet why shepherds? Just because they're there. Just because they're part of the story. But why are they even there? Why, why of all the people? Why did the angels. You know not stand in the town square in Bethlehem. Why was there not a company of angels in Bethlehem. Where all the other houses and all the other neighboring families were. And why did the angel not herald the arrival of Jesus to the community and town of Bethlehem? What was it about these shepherds that meant that they were the objects of the angel's attention and uh, visit? We don't know a huge amount about shepherds, and I've probably told you before what is the common wisdom about them. Of course, they were Jewish, part of the nation and the people of Israel. But they were also people who were viewed as kind of at the bottom of the heap. Physically unclean, they had a nomadic lifestyle which kept them for the most part out wherever their sheep were. They were shepherds, smelly shepherds. Well, I'm sure they managed to keep themselves clean in their own way. But in the eyes of the respectable religious elite, they were unclean. They weren't good enough. They couldn't get to the temple often enough. They couldn't observe the purity rituals and laws that meant in the eyes of the Pharisees that you were good enough for God. Their task was out on the hillside. Ironically, their task was breeding and rearing the lambs and the sheep that most likely went to Jerusalem, to the temple for sacrifice. Ironically, the shepherds were those ordinary, taken-for-granted people that keep the wheels of things moving forwards. And that the rituals of Jerusalem's sacrifice depended on the ordinary guys doing the work out on the hillside. Do you know, it's remarkable how much of the life 
that we take for granted depends on ordinary people doing mucky jobs. We take, for instance, our sewers and our sewage for granted. We take it for granted that when we flush the toilet, we'll never have to deal with anything again. We take it for granted that when we put our bins out, the stuff won't be there after they've done the rounds. One of the things that street pastoring has given me is a whole new respect for the cleansing department. You know, sometimes by three or four o'clock in the morning, you're wading ankle deep through uh, abandoned chips and cheese, uh, subway wrappers, polystyrene containers, uh, thrown away food, dead pizzas. The detritus of a night out in Glasgow is unbelievable. And especially at this time. And yet, I've never come into Glasgow on a Saturday or a Sunday morning and seen it all lying there. I drove home, uh, I was on Friday night, I drove home at four o'clock, half four on Saturday morning, and uh, there was a whole squad of guys in high-vis jackets with serious brooms sweeping their way down Renfield Street, just getting all of that stuff out of the way. Those are the shepherds. The ones that do the dirty work in the dark, so that we, by day, can be clean and respectable. <laughs> but what else about these shepherds then? If their uh, lack of ritual observance meant that they were unclean in the eyes of the holier-than-thou Pharisees, they were still sons of Abraham. <laughs> Every year, by God's grace, I have a, a new thought in Christmas Usually just about one or two. God's kind of eking them out so they have enough to say for the next years of ministry. Christmas is a challenge year on year. And I was reading a book by Paula Gooder, so I'll credit her with giving me the thought. But actually, the hills around Bethlehem were in all likelihood the self-same place where David was out looking after the sheep when Samuel paid a call at the home of Jesse, inquiring after his sons. And as Samuel, with his anointing oil, the horn of oil, because God had told him that there would be a new king, and the new king would come from Jesse's household. And so Samuel arrives with a horn of oil in Jesse's household and has him line up all his boys. And so they line them up with the eldest first, and one by one they come and Samuel assumes this must be the one with his Pharisaic mindset saying he's a fine young man and the eldest of the family. Surely the anointed of the Lord stands before me. But the Lord said no, not this one. All the way down till every boy that was in the house had been seen and dismissed. And Samuel asked if he had any more sons and he said there's just the youngest. He's just out tending the sheep. Well, where else would a shepherd boy whose home base was Bethlehem be tending the sheep if not on the hills outside Bethlehem? So maybe that's the reason why it seems so fitting that to herald the arrival of this new king, a visit from God, a prophetic visit to declare the arrival of a new king, should come to the hills of Bethlehem where the shepherds were. This was, after all, 
David's successor, the one who would come from his line. As we read in the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke, Jesus was in the messianic succession that came from David. And it was because of David's line, the town of Bethlehem, that Mary and Joseph had found themselves back there. And so these men doing the dirty work were rearing the sheep and the lambs so that the good and the righteous and those trying to be right with God might bring a lamb or an offering and have it slaughtered and offer it as a sacrifice in the temple. And so these unclean shepherds who could never get to church were raising the stuff whereby good people might attempt to keep their noses clean with God. And so I love the fact that to these people who were not good enough in the eyes of the righteous, who were debarred from respectability in the eyes of the better, those ones who did what they could to make sure that other people kept clean before God, those ones who stood in the succession of King David, the shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem, just as Jesus would be the successor to David. So these shepherds were successors in the tradition to which King David belonged and were standing quite literally in the place where that first shepherd king had stood when he was fetched in and summoned to the house so that Samuel, the prophet of God, might discern in him and on him the call and anointing of God. I love the way God does things. The New Testament is full of ordinary witnesses. Mary Magdalene, the tomb of Jesus, Martha and Mary of Bethany at the tomb of Lazarus, two disciples on the Emmaus Road, a Gadarene demoniac who wanted to come with Jesus but was dispatched to go and see what the Lord had done, the woman of Samaria who went through all the villages telling about a man who told me everything that I had ever done. Jesus calls us ordinary witnesses, the people who others would overlook. And Jesus continues to call and to go to people in the places and at the margins and amongst the groups that are perhaps sometimes written off, not exclusively. The counter to the marginalized shepherds was the intelligence and wealth of the Magi that we'll hear of shortly. The Jesus arrival was heralded by angels who chose these shepherds in that place, in that succession. They weren't good enough, apparently, so God came to them. And there is the message of the gospel in a nutshell. They weren't good enough to come to God, so God came to them. And that's the grace and the message that they were charged to herald. They were told Indeed, you could argue they were the very first missionaries because they were the ones 
who after they had seen him spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Who did they spread the word to? Did they go and visit Herod? Did they go and hang out with the local friendly Pharisees? Did they go and visit the well-to-do people that they knew and were connected to? No, who did shepherds spread the word to? The folks that they bought and sold, their lambs, the folks that they dealt with, the folks that they knew from the neighbouring communities, the ordinary people preparing the way for this saviour who would come to the villages and the homes of ordinary people. The message was a message not to be afraid. Good news for all the people. For all the people. Glory to God in heaven and peace on earth to those on whom his favour rests. And so they, if you like, represent the gospel moving out to Judea. Let's hear then about the gospel, as it were, moving out to the foreigners of Samaria. Thank you, Alistair. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you have them, if not, the words on the screen, we're going to ground our thoughts for the Magi in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, where we find this little section, Matthew chapter 2, reading at the beginning through to verse 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had happened. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And they heard the king They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. We give thanks to God for this reading of his own holy and inspired word to his name. Be every praise. Well, I hope you'll be somewhat glad to know that during that quiz in the questions, while we didn't win or maybe come close to it, the questions about the Magi, we actually got right. So <laughs> in that sense, in this story, you are in fairly safe hands. I say fairly. Matthew's gospel is amazing. Every gospel presents such a unique account of Jesus, of his life, um, of actually his whole purpose in coming as God's representative to earth, to do God's work on earth. But Matthew's 
primarily concerned with the Jewish Jesus. And, and he does it beautifully. He shows everything about Jesus' life, everything about his identity. It embodies what God has told the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Matthew goes to great pains to show us with one quote after another allusion, after another reference of how this is the guy. This is the one God was talking about. Not just in the obvious prophetic parts of the Old Testament, but the whole thing. Jesus said it. Search the scriptures because they testify of me. Everything about the law, everything about the prophets, it was all about him. And Matthew is going to paint to show us this. And he's got this other idea though. As well as Jesus fulfilling scripture, which he does in this little part, he's also showing that Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the true Davidic king who was going to be, who was prophesied about that would come and would rule not just Judea, not just Bethlehem, not just Jerusalem, but the whole area. And beyond that, the regions round about. And beyond that, all the lands of the earth, everything God had ever created. That's the kind of rule that was in the prophets of the Old Testament. That's the kind of rule that God promised he was going to bring through the line of David. Well, what does that have to do with the Magi? Well, if we just consider who they were and why they're here, very simply, and then we want to think about the significance of that within Advent. As Alistair said, Advent is almost like a microcosm of the whole gospel and God's mission on earth and the way it continues to push out and emanate further and further as we see God's redemptive plan from all of history is now starting to take place from Jesus' birth. You know, people think sometimes, and some different groups of Christianity, they have um, a lot of speculation about what the end times is, what it'll look like. Is there going to be a war in Jerusalem? Is it going to involve America and Russia and their armies and nukes? And actually, sometimes the plainest reading of the Bible is the most obvious. The end times kind of starts here with Jesus' birth. We are in the end times. We are. When you look at all of the Old Testament, what it says is going to happen We're in it now because God is starting to push out the group of who he is saving. It's not just one ethnic group in Jerusalem or in the region in the Middle East, Israel anymore, the 12 tribes. He's starting to move it out and include more peoples. And that is how we know we are in the time that God has said is the end when he's bringing these purposes together. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea and I'll following Alistair's tradition of putting to bed a few myths. It's after, it's probably not immediately in the days after the birth, when we put all the texts together, that seems somewhat improbable, and that's why that question was in there. It's, some scholars think it's probably a good bit after, maybe some days, weeks, months, or even years. We don't know, but almost certainly it doesn't happen the way it does in the kids' place. I'm very sorry uh, to be part of that tradition here. And bursting that bubble. But that seems to be the evidence that we have from the text. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So who were these guys? The Magi, or they might even be called wise men in some of your translations. And the word that we've got in the Greek is magos, Magi. It's used different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used for people who are wise, who are interpreters of dreams, um, who are into that kind of thing. Sometimes it's used of people who are into pretty dark magic and people who 
pretend to be like Jesus and Acts especially, that they're starting a new religion, um, false prophets. So it's got that whole air of the supernatural about it, but it's not always used negatively. Um, other historians around the time of the Bible writers, they're using it for people predominantly who are seen as uh, astrologers, uh, interpreters of dreams, those who are gifted in terms of the supernatural, those who are able to have in their time a read on these things. And actually, we need to remember at that time, this is a science. We can be so snobbish and look back and go, well, you know, that's not a science. There's no actual definitive proof of any of that stuff. Well, put yourself into the world of the Bible. This is basically the way they quite often know information. This is how they measure things. They look at the stars. This is where they began to build sea charts and know where things were. And so this has a native respectability in the time that we're talking about for the gospel writers. And these magi are people who come from the east. Again, we've got the hymn ringing on our heads, We Three Kings of Orient Are. I read a great article about this yesterday called We Three Kings of Orient Aren't. <laughs> in terms of there's been a wee bit of um, po- poetic license. They came from the east, and the term Matthew's using is more or less as an idiom, the land of the rising sun, somewhere east of where we are, the, where the sun rises over there. Uh, Orient, definitely not in terms of what you and I think of, in terms of the Far East, but east of Jerusalem. East to them was most likely what you and I would call Iraq or Iran today. That was immediately east, that's what they referred to as the east, well beyond the bounds of Judea, actually beyond the bounds of what they called North Israel, Samaria, it's pretty far east for them. And this is a region which actually had a bunch of guys in history who recalled what we would think would be Magi, as Matthew would have understood it. You see, Iran, Iraq, was all uh, taken over by different empires. You know the Babylonian Empire, at the time Daniel was writing in the Old Testament, and also the Persian Empire, which was mixed in with that. This was a hotbed, a cultural melting pot for different kinds of powers and different kinds of cultures. And it's almost certainly where these guys came from. And that's significant because... Actually, it would have had some overlap with the biblical history. Daniel and other people of God's, uh, from God's prophets were in exile there. They were in this region. They had an influence there. We actually know of a kind of priestly cult who were in that area, and they were known at this time in history, who were very significant at that time. They weren't kings, but they were kingmakers. They had a highly developed culture of philosophy, of literature, of astrology, which later became Zoroastrian and it all becomes very complicated then. But anyway, this was a highly cultured sort of group of people who were seen as a sort of powerful sect within the Median Empire and then the Persian Empire. And if you wanted to be a king, they were, I guess, a bit like the temple guards and Jews. If you wanted to get anywhere in that society... You had to get their blessing and their approval. You had to get their nod of ascendancy. And so they were very well thought of, very well regarded, men of science of their time, of learning. And we don't know if that's exactly who Matthew has in mind when he's writing that Magi came. But given there's a tribe called that from that area, and that's what he would have thought of as the East, it's highly plausible. Even more plausible is the fact that that place interacted with the Jewish scriptures. Remember, Israel were a people in exile then. They were down on their luck. Their power had been stripped from them. Nationally, they were embarrassed. 
So what hope did they have to dig into in exile? God has promised some things to us. God has declared that he will bless the nations of the earth through us. All the way back in Abraham. God has declared that he will bring a king forth from our nation and they will rule over the whole earth. Doesn't look like it just now, but he will. And that was God's promises. And these messianic, this messianic identity and these scriptures that they had would have been informing who they were in exile and almost certainly overlapped with these people. You see, they weren't completely darkened pagans. A lot of the Medes, a lot of the Persians, almost certainly the Magi, had an appreciation for the God of the Jews. They had an inquiring mind as to religion and as to trying to get to know the God and the creator of the lights and the stars that they see. And so here they come. They're moved by this inquiry, this quest to try and find the one who the Jewish scriptures speak of. And King Herod hears about this. They're here. And why are they here? Well, they're here to worship. And Herod knows about this. And it's easy to see Herod, and we have a good historical picture of Herod as a pretty crazy ruler. Um, He had people in his inner circle killed on even the slightest suspicion of disloyalty. There's loads of other popular tales of his ruthlessness and his cruelty. He's also a very good organizer, good administrator. That doesn't exonerate him. But, um, a lot like our modern leaders, but I'm not going to mention any names, but Herod's very effective, but He's not just being crazy here. You see, in the ancient world, it was thought, and it would seem to be borne out by truth, that astrological events always coincide with really significant political events. You know that there was a similar thing? Uh, there was, there's, we have history that there was a star rising over when the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD, and the Jewish people went to their scriptures and they could find reasons why this would happen. Herod's not just going crazy for no reason. The time he is living in, there's people coming from different lands. They're coming to pay tribute to a king that's being born. He's freaking out. He thinks he's very... And people don't have this view that this is a spiritual kingdom. This is a kingdom that's going to be born in the hearts of people and go out through preaching and going to transmit that way rather than a military conquest. So he thinks he might have a coup on his hands. And that is why King Herod heard this. He was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. What's this noise all about? Why are people coming? Very common neighboring kingdoms in that time to come and bring a few gifts if there's a new dignitary born, someone brought into the royal household. You want good relations, you want good diplomacy, here's some gifts. That's exactly what these guys are doing because they've heard a king has been born. And then we have the wonderful quote from Micah You, Bethlehem, the land of Judah. Are by no means the least among the rulers, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And we have Herod's deception and the fact that he's trying to get rid of this threat by any means possible. But God is all over this. And God has planned from all eternity to preserve and protect his anointed one, the king who will rule over peoples of his choosing. And then we read about them coming and bringing the gifts. And coming to the house, they saw the child of his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They prostrated themselves. That's literally what it means in the Greek. And opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This isn't just symbolic. As far as they're concerned, this is a real king. This is a real ruler. And this is a real kingdom. You don't bring gold otherwise. Another popular myth to bed, probably wasn't just three of them, 
this group from the Middle East with their power, their prestige, would have probably travelled in a caravan, probably with an outriding army with their own soldiers. No wonder people are wondering. And look at the gifts they're bringing. Even a few bars of gold in this time would have been enough to carry Mary and Joseph and Jesus through financially through the period of uncertainty that's coming when they become refugees and they're having to hide from Herod. God's providence is all over this, from injecting messianic prophecy all the way back when uh, his people were in captivity to affect a foreign culture and nation who would have known nothing of him otherwise, to providing for the baby Jesus and his family. Even the symbolic value of the fact that it's anointing spices, burial spices, speaking prophetically of the power of how Jesus is going to bring this kingdom in. God is arranging the whole thing. God is sovereignly working through history in the actual time and space events of history to bring about his purposes. And this affects all of us because these guys weren't Jews. These guys didn't know all the prophecies inside out, ethnically. They weren't taught them at the knee the way Jewish people were. And God is saying, I'm extending what I'm doing out the way. The Magi had an amazing picture for us of the fact that the gospel doesn't know any borders. That's why the command is to go to all nations and make disciples. It doesn't know any ethnic borders. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't know any socioeconomic borders. He is as for the poor, mucky shepherds as he is for rich, cultural heads of society and state who are influential and make decisions. And don't our cultural heads of state and those who are the movers and shakers in our culture continue to need the gospel today? It's popular to make the gospel for the poor and the gospel is amazing news for the poor, but it's just as good news for the rich. And it's especially good news for those of us who have a lot who perhaps have too much and have plenty and it hampers us and constricts us to thinking maybe we just don't need that much of God. They bowed themselves down and they worshipped the king. And he's in a poor house and he's in a manger and he doesn't look like he has a lot. But there's something about the power of God convicting our hearts and making us realise who Jesus is that helps us to see we need him more than anything. Why is God doing all of this? Because we make a mess on our own. Because we have ever since the Garden of Eden. And ever since then God has promised I'm going to send someone, a human, through normal human lineage. But he will be God. And he will save his people from our sins. And that's what they were doing. Friends, for you and me the gospel knows no borders. And we can't exclude or disclude ourselves from God's free offer of salvation in Christ from our sins. Neither should we. And... The Advent story gives us renewed vigour and impotence in offering this amazing message to all peoples of all kinds of backgrounds, no matter where they come from, because we get to live in the time where God is continually pushing out that message further and further until all the nations of the earth worship him and glorify him in the new creation. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray while we invite the band to come back up and lead us.